0: Lord, you are a great God. You are our Heavenly Father. You love us. You are patient with us. By your Spirit, you continue to work in us to make us more like Jesus Christ, to be conformed into his image. Uh, your Spirit labors to produce uh, fruit in our lives. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that you will forgive us for all of the times that we resist your Spirit, that we... Uh, push you away that we don't want to sort of the renovations of our spiritual self to continue or to be painful when we prefer just ease and comfort uh, lord i just pray that you will uh, so open the eyes of our heart that we are captivated uh, and consumed by the god that you are help us to see you to see jesus in all of his holy glory and splendor and all of his beauty and all of his goodness And I pray that you will help us to live our lives for him and also to be like him. Lord, we pray uh, for ourselves here this morning. Uh, We pray for the children uh, in their time in the other room. We just pray that your spirit will be at work through your word uh, to bring hearts to you. Help us to know you truly through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we pray for those uh, who are traveling, people that we know, people that we love. We pray that you will keep them safe. Uh, We pray that you will bless them with refreshment and relaxation and renewal. Uh, We pray that you will bring them back uh, safely uh, to our midst. But, Lord, we pray even now that this morning your Spirit will draw them close to yourself, remind them of the gospel, uh, feed their soul on the basis of your truth, open their minds to think great thoughts of you and to be thankful, truly thankful for all you have done for them through Jesus Christ. I pray that as we are here or whether we travel over the next few months, that this summer will be a special time spiritually for all of us, uh, that you will lead us to know you better than we have ever known you before. Father, we also think uh, this morning of uh, June and uh, the rest of the family, and we just pray that you will give strength and comfort. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for the blessing uh, that uh, Ken was in this place and in the lives of countless people. Uh, We thank you for his legacy that is now causing people to hear about your son Jesus all over the world. And we also, Lord, thank you that you have taken him to be with you, and that's what we long for. As much as we look forward to vacation, Lord, help us to truly live longing for glory uh, longing for that eternal home when we and that time when we see you ourselves face to face. So, Father, we commit our time to you uh, as we look at your word, as we celebrate communion. Uh, just please, by your Spirit, draw us to yourself for the glory of your own namesake. For we ask this in the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke and Periodically, we are going to land on some very, very familiar passages, and this morning this is one of them. In a few weeks, Lord willing, when we hit Luke chapter 15, uh, and you have the parable of the prodigal son, uh, that's another one uh, coming up, stories that you have heard again and again and again and again, but I'm not sure if you're like me, I can read passages in Scripture hundreds of times, and in God's grace, I can still come to know something new. The Lord can still show me something more. And frankly, more to the point would be the fact that I can repeat the story just as well as you can. You can you you could get up here and say the same things I'm about to say. But the point at the end isn't, so can you repeat this verbatim? It's, go and do likewise. And this is one of those passages where explicitly Jesus draws the lesson, do not be a hearer of the word alone and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. That's the the lesson that Jesus draws out in the end. Go and do likewise. Well, we begin of course, with an expert in the law coming up to test Jesus, and he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And because you've heard many Sunday school lessons about this, you've heard messages or sermons about this, you know that very commonly... Uh, the way to parse out this exchange is to say, well, the individual is off on the wrong foot to begin with because he wants to know what must I do to inherit eternal life, and so that's smuggling in some sort of works righteousness, or I'm going to earn my own way. Just tell me what I need to do in order to be right with God. And there probably is an undercurrent of that. A lot of people in the first century who were Jews believed that, You could really keep the law and that in keeping the law, you earned righteousness before God. And even if you didn't keep the law perfectly, of course, the old covenant law also had a sacrificial system to atone for guilt. And so they would say, really, if you were devout, if you were a, a pious, holy individual, you should be able to sort of keep yourself in a state of relative holiness, and where there was sin, there was, there were sort of sanctions for atonement, and you could really be okay. You could keep the law. Probably the man isn't qu- being quite that Works righteous though. I, I think that that's sort of our, our reading back the Reformation, you know, into the first century. In Acts 2, after Peter preaches about Christ and repentance and faith, the crowd, cut to the heart, says, sirs, what must we do? And so the doing language is not saying I will earn my own way. And in some ways, it can be taken as a, just a very proper question as well. If you were to tell someone the gospel even today, and you were to talk to them about sin and about Jesus Christ, death on the cross, paying the penalty for sin, you know, propitiation and expiation, all of those things, you know, there's a very good chance someone might say, "Well, well, okay, but what do I do?" And they don't mean how can I now earn my way to heaven. They mean what should my response be? How do I live? What do I think? What's expected of me now? So what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus very wisely asks him a question. How do you understand the law? How do you read it? See, one of the things I think is very important in terms of evangelism is we need to understand where people are coming from so that we'll know how they will interpret the statements that we make. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. All right, you want to know what you have to do in order to inherit eternal life. Well, you're an expert in the law. How do you read the law? What's your understanding of the law? Let's start with where you're at, with your interpretations. And the man says something that Jesus will say in another context when he's asked a similar question. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus refers to these as the two greatest commandments to love God supremely. Now this is this by itself is worth meditating on. This is the single most important thing that anyone can do. This is the greatest commandment. Jesus says the greatest thing anyone can do is love God With all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is why you exist, is to do this. Do you? Do you love God with every fiber of every faculty of your being? If you love God that way, it should be fairly obvious. In your life. In other words, you can't be totally consumed by anything and not have certain traits, certain characteristics. I mean, it's pretty obvious that, you know, when someone is consumed passionately, as a lot of, you know, Canadians are and in this sort of geographic region, you know, a lot of people are are consumed, passionate about the Toronto Maple Leafs. And they're known by the characteristics of depression and discouragement and tears and you know and all of the rest. All of those things that we can easily identify. Someone who's devoted their life to following the Toronto you know, Maple Leafs. Well, there, there are marks. There's fruit. It, it's just obvious. If you are totally consumed every fiber of your being with loving God, all of your mind dedicated to learning about God and understanding His ways in the world, your emotions inflamed with passion for the honor of God, your your strength using sort of the best time that you have, not the leftovers, not the remains, not the end of the day when, when you're exhausted from all the other pursuits of vocation and avocation and hobbies and entertainment and all of the rest. And at the end of the day, you, you, you say, I'll, I'll, I'll pray now and my head's on the pillow and my eyes are closed. Or I'll I'll read the Bible now because I've got, you know, three minutes to spare before my eyes get too heavy to keep open. I'm going to give, I'm going to give God that. And and Jesus says, no, it's all of your mind, all of your heart, who you really are in the innermost depths of your being, not an add-on, but intrinsic to your deepest nature, all of your strength, heart, mind soul and strength, different ways of saying absolutely everything that makes you you is to be dedicated in covenant faithfulness to honor and cherish and delight in God. And the reality is you do not love God unless he's your joy, unless you delight in him. Love is a lot more than emotions. It is. I I understand that. Love is a choice. Love is, we see the greatest act of love in the self-sacrifice of Christ. So love is, it's active, it does things, it moves, it accomplishes, it works. So it is a lot more than feeling, but it is not less than feeling. It is not less than emotion. And this is one of the reasons why Paul can say, you know, you can give everything you are to the poor. You can even abandon your body to the flames and have not love. So the love can't just be sacrifice. It can't just be action. It can't just be a choice to, you know, grin and bear it and suffer whatever the consequences are. It has to be emotional too. And so we love God. We are passionately committed to God. That is the most important thing. And that's the proper diagnostic test of spiritual health. Do you love God? And it's not its not a rhetorical question. It's one that you're supposed to take seriously and look at your life. Do you bear the marks of someone who loves God? And love your neighbor as yourself. The reality is, and I don't have time to sort of really track this out, but in the New Testament, it's very, very clear, the Old Testament too, for that matter. You cannot love God and hate your neighbor. You can't. But the order is absolutely essential and cannot be reversed. You love God supremely, and if you love God supremely, you will love those people who are created in His image. You will. It is not possible to love God and hate neighbor. If you love God, if you love God with all that you are, then you will love His image bearers. Your heart will be so aligned with His heart that you will love what God loves. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says in Romans 13 that love is the fulfillment of the law. Meaning, if you just loved perfectly... Now, think about this. If you just loved perfectly, you would not need any law. Why? Because love does no harm to its neighbor. If you truly love someone, it is literally impossible to hurt them. Think about that. If you truly love people, you will never wrong them. I mean... Presumably, when, when we get to heaven, you know, you, you don't need some sort of orientation day, you know, like, like you have in, in your first day of school. Your first day in school, they, they bring you in, and they sit you down. I, I guess. I'm not a teacher. I actually don't know if this happens. Let's so just go along with it. And, you know, and so they sit all the little kids down, and because you want harmony, you say, okay, here are the rules. Oh, number one. Don't be a whiner. You know, I don't know what the rules are. You know, that's the rule I would want. Uh number two, you know, put your hand up if you have a question. Number three, keep your hands to yourself. Whatever the rules are. Presumably, when we're in glory, we don't need to be sat down, sort of in in the waiting room, and to be told, okay, rule number one, don't steal. You know, rule number two, do not commit murder. Like, why don't you need that? You don't need that because where there isn't sin, you don't need law. Where there is perfect love, you don't need law. Law is restrictive. It regulates evil behavior. And if your heart was perfect, you would, there would be no need for any laws or rules of any kind. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. Love doesn't harm anyone. And so... Here we're told yeah love love god love your neighbor this is the most important thing and then jesus says you have answered correctly do this remember the man said what must i do and jesus says do this and you will live now of course we know that it is impossible for sinners to do this that's why salvation can only ever be by grace It can only ever be a gift from God because we can't do what's necessary to live. And if it was only a list of negative restrictions, such as do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. Theoretically, you might think there may be some people who could at least keep themselves from doing those things. So you don't do what you're not supposed to do. But no one can love God the way they're supposed to love God because of their sin nature. No one can love their neighbor as themselves because of their sin nature. And so salvation can only ever be a gift from God that none of us deserve. It can only ever be by God's grace that any of us have eternal life. It cannot be earned. And so Jesus says, do this and you will live. Now the man, we're told, and this is where it is dangerous for sure in verse 29, wanted to justify himself. In other words, he he didn't have he didn't have much of a hard time if Jesus said, "Well, you just love people who are nice to you or love this small circle around you. you love people who are like you in terms of, you know, race or language or whatever socioeconomic standing." Who is my neighbor? The very phrasing of the question is such that the man is really asking, so Jesus, who can I exclude? Where do I draw the boundaries? Who doesn't qualify as my neighbor and therefore doesn't qualify as someone I have to love? Who is it? Because he probably knows deep down there are some people he doesn't love. Who's my neighbor? Now listen, I would talk about this at great length if I had great length. But we are masters of doing exactly the same thing. Part of our sin nature is that we are geared to always justify ourselves. Even when we're dead wrong, we will bicker, we will argue, we will twist, we will turn, we will do anything we can to be the one who's in the right. And even if you can't possibly spin it to make yourself in the right, you will spin everything to minimize how much in the wrong you are. Or that it always takes two, right? So I contribute this percentage of error I might even be mainly at fault, but I'm not totally at fault because if you hadn't said, if you hadn't done, if the world wasn't like this, if it wasn't for my genetics, if it wasn't for my environment, if it wasn't for my education, if it wasn't for the stress, if it wasn't for this, it's just not, it's, I'm always better than people seem to think I am, you know, and if people would only realize how innocent I am, how good I am, I'm just, I'm misunderstood, no one gets me but me. Funny how I'm never worse than people think I am. I'm always better if they could only see the truth. Wanting to justify himself. So Jesus tells this story, and you're familiar with this story. The man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this, is, this stretch of road historically, Jerusalem running down to Jericho, was a very dangerous stretch of road. When I was in, uh, one of the times I was in South Africa, uh, I was not encouraged when we were driving from you know the missionaries' uh, home into sort of the slum townships where we were going to be ministering. And we're driving, and the missionary says, yeah, so the stretch of road that we're on now is called Hell Alley. it's you know, oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it's actually very common uh, lately that people... Have been shooting harpoon guns into cars to kill the driver and then rob all the passengers. So, okay. Well, let's drive faster while I lie on the bottom of the floor. You know, like let's get out of this. You know? And there are dangerous stretches of road. This was one of them. This was a very dangerous stretch of road. So the robbery is something which would have happened. You know, this morning, you know, I was, I was biking up to the church. I'm trying to think about this a little bit and, uh, my, my back bike tire, uh, has a slow leak, becoming a faster leak. So I basically need to pump it up every day. And so I pump it up this morning. I'm biking to the church. I'm kind of thinking, I hope, uh, it doesn't deflate, you know, before I get there. And then you're thinking, well, what if it does? And then what if, you know, or what if I'm biking up and, and I see a beaten-up, bloody body lying on the side of the road. What am I going to do? Well, because I would feel like I had to, having read this text, I I would maybe stop. And I would be afraid. What What if the people who did this are around? What if the same thing might happen to me? And you would say... No one in their right mind is going to fight all of this, you know? And you would be right. But there are people in the world who aren't in their right mind, and those are the ones you have to worry about. So, you know, maybe maybe it'll be a rough situation. I don't want to get beat up, you know? And and if I stop, there's a good chance my bike tire is going to deflate and I'm not going to be able to pedal away, you know, fast enough. So so what am I going to do? It's dangerous. Heather and I have, have a very good friend who witnessed a car accident, Went to help, uh, help the individual and later got a call from, you know, the police or the hospital and said, listen, you need to, you need to get into the hospital, have a blood test. Uh, the person who was in that accident, they have some, some communicable diseases. And with all the fluid, with all the blood, you need to make sure you didn't pick it up. Now this is not a day when they're worried about communicable diseases through the blood. But they are worried about being clean and unclean and contaminated. I mean, there is some worry about these sorts of things, and so it's not a pleasant situation. And so you come up to this person, and there are, there actually are a lot of reasons to pass by on the other side. And so a priest does. The leading light of Israel. Then a Levite, and the Levites were given the task of sort of taking care of the temple. They didn't all have, the Levites didn't all have priestly function, but they took care of the temple, and the Levite comes by and he passes by too. And some people say, well, why is this? I mean, maybe they didn't want to be in contact with a corpse or with blood, and so they didn't want to become unclean as they're going up to serve at the temple. But the text doesn't say they're going up to serve at the temple. In fact, the, the text says they're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So they're going the opposite direction. There were so many Levites and priests that they took shifts. And so these people have done their service, and they're leaving Jerusalem. Plus, the law also uh, prescribed, or not the Old Testament law, but the rabbinic law, uh, said that you know, taking care of those who are injured or dying supersedes duties to cleanliness. So here are people who are coming by, and there's absolutely no good reason whatsoever for them not to stop and help except they're worried about themselves. They just can't be bothered for whatever reason. Some of which, if we're being honest, might weigh a lot with us too. And they pass by on the other side. Then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And the Samaritans we've talked about before, uh, they were considered half-breeds by the Jews. They were considered you know, intrinsically unclean because of their uh, genealogies and ethnicity and genetics. And uh, there were ongoing wars between the Jews and the Samaritans about where was the right place to worship and how to worship God and all of the rest. So here comes this Samaritan. And he's not a holy man. Riding on a donkey, he's got oil and wine. And there's a very good chance this is just some regular merchant out on the road. And he sees the man, and he stops. Bandages his wounds, puts him on his own donkey. Takes him to an inn, and inns were unsavory places full of bad characters and he goes up to the innkeeper and he gives him two full days wages cash there you go there is no accountability at all for where that money's going here you are you take care of him whatever else you need when i come back i'll pay the tab again no accountability uh, inns were places that were usually run and visited by you know, thieves and rough characters. And so you're basically going to someone who you can't possibly trust and saying, here's my credit card. Run up whatever charges you need. I'll pay it off. There's a sense in which the way he acts is unwise. But that's part of the point. There is a lavishness to his generosity. He's not worried about being taken advantage of. He will do anything, no matter what the personal cost is, to make sure that this one man is fine. I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Go and do likewise. Go and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice this, though. The man asked the question, who is my neighbor, so that he would be justified in excluding certain people. Almost certainly Samaritans would have been part of that group. But Jesus never answers the question, who is my neighbor? He doesn't even say, so look, obviously everyone is. He turns the question completely around. So it's no longer, who is my neighbor? The question is, who is the good neighbor? Who's the one who's the neighbor? The priest? No. The Levite? No. The one who had mercy on him? Yes. Go and do likewise. In other words, what Jesus says is, all right, forget who is your neighbor. Let's look at what being a good neighbor means. Let's look at what being a good neighbor looks like. So now, don't worry about who your neighbor is. Go and be that neighbor to everyone that you meet. Go and be a neighbor. And if you just go out into the world to be a neighbor... You can't begin to ask these sort of analytical questions about who you're supposed to be a neighbor to. Everyone's your neighbor. Because your orientation is, I am going out to be a neighbor. I am a neighbor. And so nobody can be excluded. Go and do likewise. So what Jesus is saying to us, to all of us, is this. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that will be cashed out by going out into the world, worshiping God and being a blessing to everyone. Whether you know them or not, whether you're taken advantage of or not, you just go out into the world to be a blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. And like so often in Luke, we're not told what the man did. We're not told if he did go out. We're not told what he believed. We're not told anything. Because the question hangs over your life too. Are you doing likewise? For all the million times that you've heard this passage, are you doing it? Are you living it? Are you a neighbor who is a blessing to everyone you meet? Now, the danger here is that the two greatest commandments love God with all of your heart mind soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself can be very easy to begin to blend them and confuse them so that you start confusing humanitarian service with loving God. We see this in missions a lot. There's a big movement in missions to you know, sort of drawn on a bad reading uh, or a bad interpretation of you know, Matthew 25 where Jesus says, if you give a cup of cold water to any of these brothers in my name, you've done it for me. So you get a bunch of people now running around saying, oh, all we need to do is, is just go around and feed people and clothe people, give them medicine, give them mosquito nets. That's Christian missions. I was like, well, no, it's not. Anyone can do that. Say so, well, and the rejoinders. Well, you, know, you can't just preach the gospel and let people starve to death. Well, where on earth in the history of missions has that ever happened? You know, Christian missions, Christian missionaries have gone out and and they have taking care of people's bodies because they were interested in them as as whole people, body, mind, soul, and strength. And so you you don't have these sort of false dichotomies or, or false alternatives where it's either take care of the body or preach the saving gospel of Jesus Christ for the soul. You do both. And it's impossible to preach the gospel without taking care of people's needs. We are working with this massive confusion, though, today. People say, oh, I'm just giving a cup of cold water. That's evangelism. It's not evangelism unless they've heard about Jesus. You're, drinking your cup of cold water isn't going to save them. And so we must not confuse running around, being busy, doing things for people with truly loving God. And I think that's why this next little narrative pericope is located here. Martha and Mary. Jesus comes to their house and we're introduced to the characters, and Mary sits at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, this is the proper description of a disciple, sitting at the teacher's feet, listening and learning, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Now, doubtless, none of you have ever been frazzled when you're having guests for dinner, right? Right? I, I I don't know about you, but when people are coming over, you know, you, there's the vacuuming. That really hasn't been done in a while. You know, there's, you know, the dusting. There's the putting away everything, like, by which you mean like throwing it behind the couch, you know, like just like, doing whatever you can. Make the place look good. And then, of course, and then we start lying to each other. Like, I don't know where on earth we we decided that lying if people are over at your house, it's fine. But people come over and they go, wow, this is really clean. And you know your house hasn't been that clean in like a decade. Because you have worked so hard to get it clean. And the first thing you have to do is lie to the people and say, Oh, no, it's usually much cleaner than this. Or, no, this is so dirty. You're kidding me. Uh, oh, you know, then we start doing the same thing with the meal. We put out you know, the perfect meal. Everything is absolutely delightful. And you take a bite of it, and it's like the best chicken you've ever had. This is great chicken. Oh, no, it's so dry. It's not dry. It's great. and You know it. You're just lying to me. <laughs> so we start. to get all frazzled and frustrated. Oh, everyone's all worked up. And, and Jesus says... Martha, Mary. Let's just assess this situation. Because Martha has come to him and she is distracted and worried. And notice how her annoyance spills over so that she is annoyed and frustrated with her sister and with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And she speaks out of profound self focus. Lord, Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Not worried about Mary, not worried about Jesus, worried about me. And she basically rebukes her sister and Jesus at the same time. Note the reproach. Don't you care? Don't the same thing the disciples said. Don't you care that we drown when they're in the boat? Lord, don't you care? Tell her to help me. Now, this reminds me of Peter. No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. When Jesus begins to explain that he's going to die on the cross, he's going to be rejected and suffer. Here, Martha is informing Jesus he does not know what's right in this situation. In fact, Jesus is doing something wrong. He is not telling Mary what she should be doing, which, of course, is helping me. Lord, don't you care? Don't you get it? Tell her to do the right thing. Stop being a disciple. Start helping me with the preparations. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Now, listen, I think this has been subject to misreading and misinterpretation, too. So we say, well, there's nothing wrong. You know, everyone should just be, you know, learning from Jesus and, you know, making the meal and all the rest. That's unimportant. That's really not what the text is saying. In fact, hospitality is a great value that the Lord delights in. And it is very special to bless people with hospitality and with openness and with warmth and with your best. That's a way of honoring people. It's a way of caring for people. It's a way of showing people that they matter. So Jesus is not saying, you know, just whatever you do, don't ever have a nice meal when people come over. Like, don't prepare for them. But what, is he, what he is doing is saying this, Listen. If you're service for other people, if then you sort of end up throwing a pity party for yourself, you're really serving yourself, not them. It's about you, not them. And if you're worried and frazzled and all the rest, and if you're upset and you know, angry with the Lord, you you just need to take a moment and catch your breath. What are you worried about? What are you so distracted about? What's the problem here? Get your priorities lined up. Because what Mary is showing is a love for God with all of heart, mind, soul, and strength. So you love your neighbor as you love. You do whatever it takes to bless your neighbor, but you don't confuse doing things for other people with loving Jesus and sitting at his feet. In other words, there always needs to be at your number one priority, Jesus Christ, nothing else, no one else. He is there, all him, only him. And your service for other people flows out of that. It doesn't eclipse it. It doesn't get in the way of that. So do you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? It's not theoretical. It's practical. Does your life show the alignment of those priorities? This morning, we're going to celebrate communion. And we get to do that because Jesus loved God with all of heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus was willing to die for us. And so here we see the extent of Jesus' neighbor love, loving sinners like us. But we also see the extent of his love for God, being willing to honor God and bring God the great joy of redeeming sinners through his shed blood. As we celebrate communion, the message of the body and blood of Christ is also. Go and do likewise. You can't atone for anyone else's sin. You can't atone for your own sin, but you are to love people the way Jesus loves you. Go and do likewise. I'm going to ask uh, those who are going to be helping to distribute the elements to come forward uh, at this time. And the rest, as we wait, just take a moment to bow in prayer, uh, reflect on what the Lord has done, and in a moment, I'll lead us in prayer together. Celebrate communion. We think about the death of your son. We think about his pierced body and shed blood. Lord, I pray that you will help us to love you in response to this greater love that we have received first. And I pray that as we see the way that your heart loves a fallen and lost world and a rebellious race of sinners, I pray that you will help us in loving you to love our neighbor, to be a neighbor, to go and do likewise. Lord, if our heart's priorities are not right before you, I pray that you will forgive us and that you will correct us, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.